as always, <laughs> I have like all of the things to think about when I talk to you. And I, I love it. I love it that we, you know, yeah. that we are friends yes. for so long yes. and, um, and for so deep. We are deep friends. <laughs> it's my favorite. It's my favorite thing. <laughs> Welcome to the Diamonds for Our Children podcast, a public humanities project and motherhood ministry. I'm your host, Katie Jo LaRiviere. Drawing on all aspects of what Pope St. John Paul II called the feminine genius, I gather together the narratives, expressions, and expertise of mothers as a collective epistolary given freely as a gift to all children who might need the loving and secure presence of motherhood. This podcast is for my little ones, of course, but it's also for you, dear one, whomever and wherever you may be. If you need the love of a mother, join me every Monday. Each episode is a facet of the diamond of motherhood, and each contributes to a unified love that reflects light back onto the world. Let us fill our hearts up so that we can pour them out. Um, okay, so my name is Alexa Kalala. I have a, since the sort of premise of this podcast is about uh, motherhood and our children, um, I have a six and a half year old daughter named Charlotte Rose, and she is the human version of like super cooling liquids that just can like start fire and be ice all at the same time. She's like, she's she's something else and she's wonderful and she's you know taught me a whole lot about a whole lot of things and i work for an academic press i'm very interested in um, academia and scholarship and i have a master's degree in printmaking and i also own a small business called rose and resilience which raises money for muscular dystrophy research and treatments, which um, Charlotte has. So coming from this from a lot of different angles. Alexa is my oldest friend in the world. She knew me before I knew me. We recorded our conversation from our homes early in January. We talk about what it means to be a mother and a quote-unquote professional. We talk about COVID-19, politics, and disability advocacy, representation, and inclusion. Our conversation came about on the day after the insurrection at the U.S. Capitol on January 6th, 2021. We're all kind of reeling here. Like, I think it's okay to admit that we're not okay. And we should. I, I've liked the sort of confluence and overlap of our work and our lives and our homes. And I've loved seeing people's cats. And I've loved seeing, like... Just that, like, people are human. It's really nice to see that. Yes. <laughs> and I've loved the sort of disillusion of professionalism as a mandate. I, I hope that we hold on to that when this is over. I hope that we can still respect that being human is also professional because I think one of the things that has been a premise of professionalism is to deny some human elements of ourselves and I hope that we stop doing that. Amen I agree with that it is a sense of this hyper productive hyper capitalistic hyper individualistic thing that has like taken over what it means to be a working person or a professional of any kind Um, And COVID has just blown that to bits because suddenly, oh yeah, I have a family and oh yeah, I have to, you know, do this Zoom call in, in a closet or (laughs) where, you know, wherever I have a moment's peace, which for, for many, many, many of us who, who have families and have children and pets and um, just who are humans we can't hide it. So, so I agree with you. Yeah. I, I just think on the, on the most basic level, the more human we can see each other being right now, especially the better. Yes. 
Yeah, no, I agree. Uh, We, and you know, I mean, like to kind of transition this into a motherhood context, I think, you know, women have asked to, and it, maybe it's a historical thing because women have been ubiquitively part of the workforce less time than men. And so we have asked to kind of deny parts of ourselves as part of our work, big parts of ourselves right. as part of our work, you know, like pregnancy there's so much scorn thrown at pregnant women for needing, needing medical interventions during a pregnancy because it's quote unquote, not a disability, which, okay, half the population, many, much of half the population does have children. That does not mean that it's not a period of disability in which we should be particularly careful. And I don't know, it's, it's strange because like I, I worked every day of my pregnancy. I did not have, Charlotte's due date was seven days before I qualified for maternity leave. Um, and so, uh, and my, my whole leave was unpaid, which was really hard to do because I was not making it very much money. So, I mean, like the, the amount of times that I worked from my phone in the corner of a bathroom stall so that I could like throw up, <laughs> which is super gross. Sorry. Yeah, was, but, was but real, right. like speaking of being human, I was sick the whole time and I still worked the whole time. I didn't took it. I did not take a single day off, which I don't know. I, looking back on that, I'm like, you you were, you were crazy. That's crazy. It was horrible. I had the same experience. You know, I think about how many women, especially in the United States, must have this kind of experience where you cannot take any time off, right. where even if you have the time, you have to be very judicious yes. about when you're going to take it. And if you have the time, you also need to be very aware of the perception yes. of you that will that will come across if you decide to take yes. it. I mean, I, I remember countless times just hoping that my office mate would not walk in while I was puking and then wiping my mouth off going and back to work. gargling some water and going back to the classroom. Like this is just I had I've had three babies and my longest maternity leave has been one week. Yeah, no, I so, remember seeing a picture on Facebook of um, when I think Azalea was like three days old and yeah. you had to work. I mean, and this is this isn't just me like pity party. It's it's so many women in America. It is an absolute reality. It is an absolute reality. And I mean, I think if we're thinking about essential workers, especially during this time of COVID, like those are the people. Right. Those are the people who can't take a maternity leave. Those are the people who really do have to choose between being with their baby at this most crucial time and earning money to support their baby. Yeah, yeah. And I think, you know, of course, like the babies are important, but I think sometimes moms have a tendency to forget what they just did. Yes. It's been almost seven years since I've been removed from birth, but like birth is wild. Yeah, yes. right. Like if you if you uh, think about it, like what what is happening there? I mean, it's beautiful, it's wonderful, <laughs> and you know, it's been happening for millennia. And like, yes, it's a totally normal and natural thing, but it's also freaking wild. <laughs> and it's kind of this thing where you can't <clears throat> you you can't even describe. It's it's like, a car accident. You, you went to work three days but, after yeah. a car accident. Yeah, which. I've done that too, like an actual car accident. So it's kind of the, in part, it's like you were saying, you were looking back at yourself and saying, wow, you were just nuts for doing that. Like that was just bananas. And on the other hand, what choice, what choice did you have, have? Yeah. right? What choice did you have to, <clears throat> to not do it? And so when you're thinking about pregnancy as a disability, you know, before I ever had kids, I always thought that that was so um, demeaning and horrible way to to talk about pregnancy and to talk about this like miraculous time in a person's life. But when I actually started dealing with disability in my life through through my scholarly studies and through my family life and, and just through people that I know, I started realizing that, you know, really the, the merit of this idea of the social model of disability versus the medical model. And I think that this kind of does explain why I'm more willing to talk to think about pregnancy as a disability now, because I think it's the world around us that disables us in a yes. way by not accommodating to our very natural needs when you're, you know, when you're pregnant. So it's just a really interesting sort of flip 
for me in a way that I've, I've kind of learned through experience to change my mind about things, which I think is always valuable. Yeah. And I mean, changing perceptions about disability are so, are like very important for abled people. You know, the perceptions of disability are very much how, how we treat disability. And as you said, you know, prior to having kids or prior to being involved in, um, in any sort of disability in your own life, the word disability kind of struck a demeaning tenor. And when you have had the experience of having a child with a disability or going through a period of disability, which it can be a period of disability, completely changes your perception of it. And so, you know, it's true. It's when I hear people say, you know, that pregnancy is a disability, um, is demeaning towards this very beautiful and natural thing. It's hard. I, I, I bristle because I'm like, what the implication of that is, is that people that have disabilities are not beautiful and natural. Right. You know, I think that sort of perception shift is so important to realize that disability is a state and how we respond to it really kind of defines it, you know, what really is yeah. a disability. It defines is, it's an, it, an inability right. to participate in society exactly the way we think that you should have to. Right. And so the way that we perceive it and treat it actually affects how disabling we yes. create our society. Yes. And that's actually kind of what I was trying to say is that we, we create disability by being inflexible and unempathetic. Yes. And by not yes. listening. Yes. Well, and the reality is sort of as you were as you were hinting at a few minutes ago, that that all of us in time will be disabled in some way, yeah. right? Like we will grow old, we will become ill. I mean, COVID lays this quite starkly in front of us. I think the idea that you can't say I'm a I'm an abled person like that's. Right. That is a, a an unpredictable reality that that cannot be yeah, guaranteed. Yeah, I, I am abled in this. Second. And so, exactly. So we um, we hinder ourselves as much as we hinder people with visible disabilities or with you know diagnosed disabilities. We hinder ourselves because we are not creating a society that accommodates all right. humans. As we continued our conversation, Alexa and I spoke a bit about what happened during the insurrection at the United States Capitol on January 6th, and how that event might have affected our children. We talk about how true inclusion and authentic representation create a better life for everyone, because they are the first step and the most important step we can take to root out prejudice, to normalize difference, and to appreciate each other and each other's basic needs. In other words, inclusion and representation, this normalization of difference, are the fundamental means by which we fight the impulse of the insurrection that occurred on January 6th, that impulse toward division, towards separatism, towards scapegoating, all of those things are thwarted when we choose to include in an authentic way. One of the things that has struck me about having a child with a mobility disability, you know, it's progressive. So right now she's fairly typical, I guess, typical. I really hate using that word, but things that happen like yesterday um, are the kinds of things where I am like, would anybody be there for her? You know, in a situation like that, is she on her own? Absolutely. Uh, yeah. I mean, and I, I heard an interview with Senator Taylor Yes, that's exactly yesterday. what I was thinking about. Yeah. And she's a wheelchair user, in case listeners don't know. And she was describing how she was on her way to go and make a speech. And she said her term was, they turned me around. And I thought to myself, you know, if you're a person who's not using a wheelchair, that looks like someone came up to you, looked you in the eye, 
told you, you need to turn around and your body does it, right? If you, if you're a wheelchair user, it actually, you might literally physically be turned around, turned around, physically turned around. Um, and that's a whole different bodily experience, a whole different experience of autonomy. Yeah. You know, and not only that, but then you need to find an accessible way. Yeah, And what she was saying is, you know, there were very few accessible ways for her to escape and I'm glad she's okay. Right. And I'm glad that she was able to find safety, but the idea that our nation's capital, which is supposed to represent all of us is inaccessible to a veteran who served her country and could not find safety is despicable. And it's why representation matters so much. And it's why one of the things that I focus on very heavily in my business and in advocating in my, in my professional life, I believe so deeply that representation matters almost more than any other action that we can take. Because for me, prior to being a parent to a child with a disability, it was not normalized to me in the way that it is now. And that's a really big problem. And it, it should not take experiencing something to understand it. And I wish that it didn't. And in, in a lot of ways, there's a lot of shame for me to admit that like, there, there are things that I know now that I didn't know. And I wish that I had because those are important things to know. They're important things for how I contextualize it and how I um, think about it and how I speak about it. And I'm sure that that being a disabled person would give somebody better language to speak about it. And I'm sure my language is not necessarily the best. However, that's why re- representation for me is almost the single most important thing that I think we can accomplish as a society. It's why it's important to elect black women. It's why it's important to elect women. It's why it's important to elect people of color, people with disabilities, people that look like the population, because without that, we don't normalize that difference. And normalizing that difference is right. is one of the best ways we can go about dismantling prejudice and dismantling racism. And I mean, policy has to be there too, but you know, the single biggest hurdle is getting people to realize that difference is difference, but it doesn't necessarily mean what they think it means. And you know what, it's kind of like those, those images you see going around on the internet of like these wheelchair accessible stairs, ramps and things. And then you have actual people with disabilities being like, no, that's not, that's not going to work. And then you see people with these wheelchairs that climb stairs and disabled people are like, no, that's terrifying. No, no. no. And it is clear <laughs> right. no disabled right. people were included in those decisions. And yeah, that is absurd. The paternalism. Right. It is absurd. Um, absurd is a great word <laughs> for that. Just because, um, you know, there are things uh, like you were saying earlier that you can't even quite, you can't even realize unless you have had the experience or have at least spoken to someone who has had mm-hmm. the experience, right? So many wheelchair users, the ones I know have said to me, you know, that their, their chair is right. an extension of their body. So don't come don't and touch it. Don't grab my me. chair. Don't come and push me. Yeah. And so, yeah, I can imagine that having a a wheelchair that climbs stairs or does these strange um, maneuvers to to get you into a, an abled world would feel foreign and terrifying um, and, right. and unnatural. And so it's really, really about, you know, not just inclusive design, but in inclusive conversation before you even start the design, all of these layers. Well, it, it's to, also yeah. an assumption that Go ahead. the average human body is the aspirational human body and that, yes, that there's exactly. an implicit less than attitude. You should want yeah. to be able to walk without assistance. You should want to be able to think of things. You should want to be neurotypical, you know, and it, and exactly. it, it also does not have to go into the, you know, savant sort of language either, right? Like there's, there's just not enough yeah. of like, this is normal. Right. And, and, uh, you know, uh, yeah, normal and D- good. Difference is, difference is you good. Know. I just wanted to ask you sure. a little more about Rose and resilience. And 
I was hoping that you would tell us a bit about sure. about what the mission is there and what 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 do you actually yeah. do? Well, okay, so in that business, um, you, when Charlotte was diagnosed, we spent four days in the hospital because she had this little episode where she spiked a fever and she had a stomach ache but there was no other symptoms. So they told us to take her to the emergency room. They did a urine test and her urine was brown. So they thought it was a liver thing or a kidney thing. And they, they thought she had hepatitis because um, her liver enzymes were really elevated. Mm. So they sent us to the hospital um, or they admitted her for four days. And, you know, at the time she was two and a half. And once she got some fluids, um, now I know why this is all happening. But once she got some fluids, she was like a normal two and a half year old on an IV, which if you've had a two and a half year old, you know that being on an IV is probably not the best environment for them. So it was like having this little two and a half year old running around on a needle leash. It was awful. Well, I was going to die. And then, you know, my husband got shingles. Oh. And so like I, I was in the hospital by myself with a two-year-old oh. on a new needle leash, not knowing what the hell was going on. And, you know, the geneticist comes in and he's like, oh, I think she has muscular dystrophy. And I'm like, what? <laughs> no, no. You know, and he thought that it was um, a type of Duchenne muscular dystrophy, which only affects boys, which was even more confusing. But I, I mean, at, where I work, I have really, really good insurance. Even with the good insurance, it was a very expensive trip to the hospital. And uh, those trips started increasing because what was happening is she has this, um, as part of the muscular dystrophy, she has something called non-traumatic rhabdomyolysis, which is when her muscles break down rapidly through any number of scenarios. They flood her kidneys and her kidneys aren't able to process the toxin or the I guess it's an enzyme as well. And so we have to hospitalize her several times a year just because she gets a normal childhood virus and it causes her kidneys to, to be overwhelmed. Um, a lot of people get rhabdomyolysis after car crashes or other traumatic events, which is why they call it non-traumatic rhabdomyolysis because um, usually it's a crush injury that occurs, which is also why the ER has a hard time managing it because they're like, she's fine. <laughs> anyway, it started being very expensive and I didn't mm -hmm. know how we were going to pay for this. So I, you know, I had made her a few bows just because they were kind of part of this online community I was a part of and their bows are adorable. And a few people had started wanting them. And so I made <laughs> um, some of these bows with little unicorns on them. And somebody asked it. And I was, I think I sold 20 of these bows in one evening. And I turned to my husband and I was like, can you imagine how much two or 300 extra dollars a month would make a difference for us in terms of being able to help Charlotte or, or not even being able to afford this new horrible thing that was happening. So I started this business and it was a, uh, we were going to raise money for limb girdle muscular dystrophy type 2C, which is the specific type she has. And because it's so rare, it's a fairly low priority next to Duchenne. Um, so it was going to raise money for research for that. And it was also going to save some to help pay for her care and it got big and it got really fast and so now I'm able to save for her care because there's a possible gene therapy but it is um, projected to cost between one and three hundred thousand dollars and insurance usually fights with people to cover it and I didn't want to have to be in a position where we could save her life and not be able to afford it. Just like so many other families in this yeah. country have to do with insulin and other, what should be affordable treatments, but aren't, you know, as, and so I didn't, I didn't want to be in that position. And I thought since I had the time, so yeah, so, so the, the sort of fundamental premise of Rose and Resilience is that we raise money for muscular dystrophy care and research. However, what really would I be doing if my goal was to only save this one person? I can't expect people to be there for me and to show up for me if I'm not going to show up for them. So Rose and Resilience shows up a lot for a variety of um, causes and organizations. If we have a member in our group who needs something, we show up for them. And so it's also become an online community that is centered in uh, love and trust and respect. And we work really hard 
to center those things. And so how could, how could our listeners like access that or is it something that they can support well, or so join we, um, in some way? We'll always take donations to the Curtin Peter Foundation, which is the foundation that um, raises money for a 2C. And I can send you a link to donate to that. Um, Rose and Resilience has a website, roseandresilience.com, and all of our products are um, there. Last year, we sold 16,000 bows and clips. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. No, I, uh, I have to kind of process this on a day-to-day basis. Um, That's beautiful. But, you know, we will continue to give, we will continue to serve, and um, we will continue to center inclusion and, and representation and respect and um, all those things, that's, that's, that's kind of been become the mission of Rose and Resilience. We've had quite the journey. Um, and no, one of the fundamental gifts I want to give Charlotte, speaking to the premise of the podcast, is I want her legacy to be, whether or not we're able to give her treatment or a cure, I want her legacy to be one where she understood the value of community and respect and trust and service and how all of these things, when they work together, create a society of inclusion. We all show up for each other all the time in big and small ways. I want to show her these things. I want, you know, in, in, in its essence, Rose and Resilience is a service to show her the kind of world I want her to live in. there's something that's sort of a parallel that's running here for me, at least um, looking at this from an outside perspective, but a perspective of a friend, which is um, that when we face circumstances that are really difficult, it is within the imagination to do something right. To make some, um, yeah. some progress toward a goal that is worthy and in your particular case to to create beauty right and to find beauty to use beauty as a, a beacon um, and also uh, a guide in a way because I'm thinking about these bows and and sort of the the actual product that Rose and Resilience makes these hair clips and bows they're so cute. and they're beautiful right and they contribute they're so cute and they they um contribute to mm-hmm. people's feeling about themselves you know in beauty and they reflect Aww. the beauty of their maker if i'm if i can say that and i just so it's really it's really there's something about beauty in here and there's something about being able to just do one yeah. thing do one small thing right which might grow and grow but you Try you it. wouldn't have known that if you didn't just yeah, the, the, the kind of form yeah. that desperation took um, for me was <laughs> to create. Well, I mean, because that, that's <laughs> the thing is like, you know, for a long time, I wished that that Charlotte had something that we could do something about. I don't really know what word to put on that kind of signal to the universe that is like, there, there are so many things that we can do something about. Why did it have to be this for anybody? Hopefully there will be a treatment in 10 years and you're like, well, you gave her a life expectancy of 20. So like, we're kind of dealing with a clock here, you know, and there's so many people that have died and, um, right. From this waiting for help that, you know, and it, it, it's like, there's, there's a deep selfishness in me being like, I just hope that it's not her. Right. You know, and I, I struggle with that too. Cause I, when, when it when she was being diagnosed, I was like, man, I just wish this wasn't her. And I was like, but I just wish it wasn't anybody else too. You know, like I found myself correcting myself being like, yeah, no, no, it is unacceptable to wish it wasn't her without wishing that it wasn't anybody. Yeah. So, I mean, that's the other thing too, is that I'm saving all this yeah. money for yeah, her, yeah. but if insurance pays for it, that money is going to save, like, it, like we're not, that money is for saving somebody's life. It's going to go to her first because that's my job. But if it doesn't have to go to her, then it's that, right. that money is earmarked 
for life-saving. And right now it's not doing anything except for hoping, very generously hoping. I wonder if you have found that there is a grind to managing a disability with your child. Yes. I mean, there is a grind, but I will, I will say that for us, because, um, because the disability is um, a social creation in a much more concrete way for us than it, than it is for you, I think, um, because it's not, um, a medical issue. It, it's really right. just um, neuro difference, right? That that she really does own it in a way, and I, I like that that terminology. Um, and it's consistent with a lot of the actually autistic community, which says, yeah. you know, we we are autistic. Um, we're we're not people with autism. They actually use identity first language because. Yeah. Uh, autism really is the way that they are in the world. And so, and so, yes, yeah, she does, you know, really own it. And I, I hope to cultivate that within our family, right. To, I, to, you know, we told her very early on um, her diagnosis and we told her, you know, a lot of the uh, sort of combination of ways that because other people don't have what she calls an autism brain, um, and she says autism Hopefully. brain. So she, she gives it a little, uh, emphasis there on the second, second syllable. Yeah. She, she's not gonna, um, let that just be anything ho-hum. So <laughs> she, you know, she's aware that, that society is disabling for autistic people. And I think that when we talk about there being a grind or when, when we talk about there being sort of hope for things to be better for her. Um, For us, it's in terms of like, we hope for autism acceptance. We hope for inclusion. That's a real sort of inclusion um, that accommodates the support needs of autistics and that, that actively promotes representation of autistics. So there's that. And then, you know, when we talk about the hard parts of it, um, from the parents' perspective, um, for me, honestly, the hardest part is dealing with the public school system, because even when they do offer accommodations or supports, parents of autistic children have to be sort of on their heels at all times, making sure that the accommodations are actually happening, making sure that the inclusion is actually happening in a genuine way, and also to fight against applied behavior analysis because um, many, many autistic adults uh, report that that particular way of quote-unquote treating autism is actually abuse. And that approach to treatment is um, ubiquitous in the school system and in, in the healthcare system for autism. And so it's really that, that is a grind to say like, no, actually I'm not here for us to teach her how to behave like a typical child. What I'm here for is for you to learn her needs, for you to learn how to accommodate her uh, support needs, how to talk to her, how to take her seriously, how to treat her like a human being. And you know, as we talked about with uh, wheelchair users too, like that is a struggle of representation, inclusion, and ultimately changing the hearts and minds of people, exposing them to a, a diversity that they have not encountered in a meaningful way. So, um, you know, there are some real similarities, I think for us, but also also some differences yeah. in terms of what it means to hope and what it means yeah, to fight. Yeah, I think 
um I think that that grind um, right like yeah like love is a verb hope is a verb too hope is such a verb for us <laughs> yeah um yeah. it's not a feeling it is a you know we okay. do so many things with so much hope um we do so many things you know in to protect against hope too you know like we are doing the service dog for her hopefully she won't need it see right there like hopefully she won't need it and we will just have a very well-behaved dog but we we're also ensuring <laughs> that if our hope is misplaced <laughs> we're not leaving her without her what she needs and we have a great amount of privilege to be able to do that hope for us is a verb and it, it is the the action of hope is a grind I think um, some days are easier than others. Just, it seems to me that like baked into this idea of hope as a verb for you and for me, and I think for many parents of children who have disabilities or for caregivers of any kind and for disabled people themselves, the idea of hope as a verb is um, yeah. is baked in with contingency plans right it's always this well we're going to get this resource or we're going to fight for this accommodation because if we end up needing it it's going to be crucial it's going to be life-saving it's going to be it's not just about quality of life but it's actually yeah. like sa saving it's life entitled. right saving mental health yeah saving and I think one of the things we talked about too before I mean we had yes. a conversation before um, recording was you know we making a difference between positivity and toxic positivity, right? Like baked into this hope is a rejection of the toxic positivity of what yes. I think people normally conflate with hope. Yes. Right. Not she'll get better someday or, you know, Oh, isn't she cute and in her wheelchair Inspiring. or, you know, Oh yeah. Oh, isn't it wonderful that she was able to do this despite her uh, disability? Yeah. All the inspirational these, language um, makes me things. very especially upset. the, and I, the videos and I, of the I, it's hard it's hard to balance with a culture that yeah apparently needs it i don't i don't know i don't know what it is that like we i don't know what itch we are scratching <laughs> when we with this inspiration porn i don't get it mm -hmm. it's awful i think it's a sense of um you know hey if we can find something inspiring about it then it's not yeah as bad as we think it is for our listeners that term is in is within the disability community this idea that people just like to see the inspirational story and they don't they don't truly embrace yeah. um sort of all of the layers behind it when it comes to disability and not just the hardship but also the joy right the idea that being disabled no. doesn't necessarily mean your life is terrible you know, I think it is that ableism <clears throat> that is sort of inherent in our society that says, you know, as we were talking about before that, well, being able-bodied or having a typical neurology is better than the alternative. Um, and I, the disability community really, really um, yeah. understandably yeah. is disgusted by that so that toxic positive positivity and and inspiration porn kind of go together and that you know that too is part of the grind I think or part of the the struggle of yeah. fighting no a absolutely culture I mean I think that is think so steeped in ableism <clears throat> again that sort of paternalism where you know inspiration porn or this toxic positivity is like well you know mm -hmm. I'm going to center what I think you need versus asking you what you need right um you know and it, it, it is very hard in a in a culture to right. normalize ability slash disability in a culture that even when they're trying to help others even in the most altruistic moments the yes. result is a further othering of people with disabilities and i don't know that we can do anything about it yes. until we accept that the altruism that is intended is harmful because nobody wants to hear that the thing that they're doing to try and be nice mm -hmm. is harmful. Nobody wants to hear that. But what's more important is that we stop harming people with disabilities with yeah. altruism. Period.
it's a major lesson that I think, you know, kind of is this thread going through our whole conversation today <clears throat> about um, just the idea that we need to start understanding or we need to practice an understanding of being human that we've never yeah. wanted to face before, right? We've never had sort of an opportunity like perhaps we do right now when we are at oh. crisis level dehumanization. Um, I sure hope so. Maybe this is the time. <laughs> this is the time to embrace yeah. a sort of, I don't know everything. I can't know everything. So let me learn what would be helpful because this idea of the of the altruism yeah. that actually hurts people really really has to do with the ego right it really has to do with this well I'm trying to help and I'm trying to be a good person yeah, yeah. we have conversations about this we, we talk about how you know I really right. appreciate that you want to help me thank you um, I really appreciate your intention however when we help somebody the best thing for us to do is to ask them what they need and listen because if listening is not the first step of right. being helpful, then helpful it is not. You know, I, <laughs> I'm i trying to teach her mm -hmm. that too, so that she can advocate for herself. So that she learns, she learns to, she learns those words in her mouth, which is, I need right. you to listen to me. Because if you are not going to listen to me, then your help is not help. Right. And it is, it yeah. is sort of this deep modeling, right, of, of everything it's not necessarily explicit, but it is a, it is a developmentally yeah. appropriate way of saying, all right, here's the lesson kid. Yeah. Here's, here's the thing about being a human. So I just love that so much. I think that's really um, <laughs> such so. a good, <laughs> a deeply good thing. You know, the um, sort of the, the race conversations that are happening um, is that we are a generation that was raised on I don't see color. Absolutely. And right. none of that is helpful right now. You know, our yeah. black and brown friends need us to see color right. because they need us to see how that color has affected the way that people treat them. And they need us to see color because they need us to listen to. Yes, exactly their experiences and not dismiss them as all lives matter, right? Like they need, right. they need us to see them for who they are because who they are right. is how the world has treated them. And so, I mean, it's this, the same kind of train of thought that is trying to teach Charlotte those differences of what is help and what is not and how to listen and how to not and how to, how to reject platitude, how to reject altruism. Yes, yes. Yeah. How to embrace nuance and how to allow ourselves to have conversations that are nuanced to give each other the space to um, say things incorrectly so that we can then come to a, yes. an agreement yes. or a, a place where we I negotiate so many wrong terms things. gently. And and I'm always you know, sorry. Um, I'm, like I, like, we all do. I, we all I don't do. Know. I, we all do. We all do. And I try so hard to do better. We all do. But I think that's well. I mean, I think that is part of the 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 key, right? It's part of what you're saying about listening is, even listening to yourself yeah. speak and then say, I I think I was wrong, or I I know I can't yeah, always be correct <laughs> about this, and that that really you know just picks up a theme I, I'm hoping um, to share so much throughout these episodes is just the idea that you, you, you can, you must learn from people who are different from you and not just use them as something to learn from, but actually you can love people who you disagree with and who you're not, you know, you can't even sit in the same room with necessarily, yeah. but you can, you can love them. 
it's important, I think, in all that we do, that we practice that. It sounds so small, perhaps, but it's not. It's maybe, yeah, and I mean, I think it's I maybe think too, in life's a distinction work. I make with um, Charlotte a lot is I love you, but I don't like your behavior. Where love and like are not necessarily the same thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Loving everybody does not mean yeah, yeah, absolutely. excusing things that are unacceptable. And we've made this very, we've, we've formatted love very weird in our culture. The, the, the love format, the love template is really screwed up. <laughs> yes. um, and we have not yet been able to have a frank conversation that love sometimes is distance, sometimes is boundaries, sometimes is the things that we don't associate with love because we have conflated love with like and affection and and desire and mm-hmm. association and those things are not necessarily true mm-hmm. and i think we can teach our children to love with judiciousness yeah i mean isn't that it's sort of this balance between justice and mercy maybe not not because that sets them up as a dichotomy but actually like using them with each other we have this merciful sort of attitude toward each other just as as a disposition and because we love each other so much we hold each other accountable and that I think yeah I think that's you know deeply woven into to all of our discussions about race and about disability and about representation and inclusion. You know, I I really, really don't like small talk. Yeah. (laughs) Like, I just want to talk about the important things all the time. And um, because I've had you as a friend for my entire life, I never really realized until I was much older that no. that a lot of friends don't actually talk about deep and important things. Um, and I, I just have to say how grateful yeah, I, I am. Yeah, I don't think we've ever had a frivolous didn't conversation. didn't learn that until so late. You know, that, <laughs> there has been no how is the weather. Because I know you know. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, yes. Amen, girl. I Especially if I have to run in your it. whole life. <laughs> So if, um, if there was one or several or however many you want um, resource that you <clears> could <throat> share with the listeners uh, that might have to do with anything that we talked about today um, that might expand their learning or be something that they could do, an action that they could take um, um, if they were feeling so inspired, what, what would you share with them? People with disabilities on Twitter? and Black feminists, because I very much appreciate the perspectives that they bring to our culture. And and also, you know, be prepared to not agree with everything they say, and that's fine. Yeah, honestly, I, I feel like maybe, maybe if I can, <laughs> if I can just add something to that. Yes, you absolutely should go use your social media for this information gathering right not in a not in a way that uses people but in a way that that you can just use it to be reflective right and so just right follow to listen right don't allow yourself to respond if something sounds harsh if something feels hurtful if you're not sure why you're feeling defensive about a certain thing that someone has said just yeah so i mean there are a few that i think are particularly just hold it good um, Sophia yeah. Noble yeah. is my real life hero. I've gotten to meet her twice, um, both times when she was speaking. One time she was a keynote speaker at a conference I was attending and she blew my ever loving mind. Um, and then the second time I actually went to see her speak at, um, at a mm. conference she was giving at my uh, institution. Um, it's S-A-F-I-Y-A, Noble and O-B-L-E. Um, she's an information scientist that, uh, that investigates the way, uh, search engines oppress very interesting stuff. 
it doesn't necessarily seem like it's directly related to the things that we talked about today, but wow. it has affected my worldview in ways that I think are pretty profound. And I don't necessarily know how to explain how mm -hmm. I way found myself from there to here, but it's been impactful to me. Um, also, Brittany Cooper is a black feminist on Twitter mm. who I enjoy um, and who I respect and who I learn a lot from. Um, and Crutches and Spice is the um, handle on Instagram or no, on Twitter. I follow her more than anything. I think exposure to these perspectives are the first step, the first resource. Yeah. Yeah. With a disposition of humility. Of, of course. Time, absolutely. Really, uh should be the approach to everything. Ooh, so that was a long one, friends. But sometimes we have to take the time that these conversations take so that we don't cut ourselves off with platitudes, so that we allow ourselves to embrace nuance. I'm trying more and more to make that a part of my daily lived practice and I'm so grateful for friends like Alexa who will do it with me. Thank you so much for spending time with me this week. You are a beloved child. And today, for just a few moments, you chose to be with me. I'm so honored by that. I hope you can feel how much you are loved. If you know someone who could benefit by spending time with us, will you invite them to the Diamonds for Our Children community? Help them find our website at diamondsforourchildren.com. Send them a link to the show on Spotify, Apple, or any podcast platform. Or search for Diamonds for Our Children on Patreon. Patreon members are eligible for lots of good things, especially the opportunity to help me turn this mama love into tangible giving in our communities. You can also share what the show means to you by reviewing the podcast on the free Apple podcast app. Rating and reviewing helps others to find our community and our love. And who knows, your review might just be featured on the doc website. You can also get in touch with me via email at diamondsforourchildren at gmail.com to ask questions or share your thoughts with me. I can't wait to be with you again next week. Together, we create facets of a unified love that reflect light back onto the world.